Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, August 29th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I dip our toes into the murky waters of right-wing media. We'll discuss whether Donald Trump's rocky relationship with Fox News is on the mend, and we take a look at the incredible success of The Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro's multi-million dollar media empire. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to the last few days of August. Uh, I'm joined today, as I am every Monday, by John Kelly. John, September is approaching. Are you going to uh, be lining up for a pumpkin spice latte immediately on September 1st? You know, I used to be into the, the pumpkin apple spice drink thing uh, years ago in my youth. Can't quite handle it now. My dad has kind of a rule around this with sports. Like, he's not really ready to watch NFL until the World Series is over. I don't abide by that because I love college football. But I feel like October is really when fall begins. Anyway. Yeah, I'm with you. I've been I've been soaking up hard knocks. I'm not sure if uh, you <laughs> I, are I into uh, the Lions. But, um, man, that Dan Campbell is uh, one legit old school meathead. I don't think I've seen I, anything like in a long time. For people out there watching hard knocks, they're doing the Detroit Lions. And, you know, they suck. Um, but they're trying to rebuild with this guy, Dan Campbell. I have a, a great conversation piece for sports heads, which is, is Dan Campbell a doofus meathead? or a genius, and I don't know. I think it's the former, um, but he's pretty charming yeah, yeah. in the show. But Hard Knocks always does that. They're good at building characters. It is the former, and, and Aaron Glenn <laughs> and Deuce Daly are certainly uh, the, the stars of of this one. Yeah, no, Dan Campbell, if you need uh, anyone to like bang their head through a wall, um, uh, call that guy. He's, he seems yeah. ready, willing, and able. Yeah, he, he reminds me of like the 2022 version of Latimer from the program, if anyone remembers that 90s movie. Um, most people probably don't. Um, anyway, I want to change subjects drastically <laughs> and talk about Donald Trump's relationship with Fox News, which has been up and down and up and down over the years. You know, back when he was running for president, 2015, Rupert Murdoch and the gang weren't about it. Uh, then they had to become about it. And, uh, you know, now that Trump's out, there's been like these signals here and there that you know, the Murdoch empire is trying to move away from Donald Trump. I mean, the I feel like we've seen a bunch of editorials and covers in the New York Post, mm-hmm. basically like telling Trump to go away. There was a really interesting piece. I've mentioned this on the podcast before uh, in The New Yorker by Dexter Filkins about Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. And it sort of made the case that Fox was sort of trying to puff up DeSantis uh, now that Trump is out of office. And then Eric Rapiz says that in the year after the presidential election in 2020, Fox News producers asked Ron DeSantis to appear at least 110 times on Fox News. And he agreed at least 34 times. And obviously, every time DeSantis goes on Fox, it's a circle jerk. Um, (laughs) But now Tara Palmieri has a piece out for Puck.News about Trump sort of rekindling his relationship with Fox based on on the Mar-a-Lago raid, which, you know, turned conservative media into overdrive. Um, Fox News immediately started defending Donald Trump. What do you think about that? I mean, it's, I don't know. How would you define the relationship, John, between Trump and Fox at this point? I would say it's actually in, in the pre-rekindle phase. I, I think that after Trump, like any you know madman, sort of viewed his election laws and the fallout from January 6th as <laughs> not through um, the misbehaviors uh, of his own self, 
but as the disloyalty of the people around him. And, and he, you know, and he blamed others. And I think he blamed Fox. And it did seem for a number of months in early 21 that there was going to be a clean break here. Trump had been deplatformed finally from Twitter and Facebook. He was no longer the coin of the realm. It actually kind of seemed like he was going to go away and he didn't have his vice grip on the, you know, sort of psychological panic button of uh, of the right and certainly of, of part of the left. He disappeared off of Fox. That was how many people sort of registered it, that he was no longer calling in to, to Judge Janine. He wasn't calling in to Ducey in the morning. He wasn't calling in to Hannity. And from Tara's reporting, Trump, he was pissed about this. This was some form of disloyalty. And now that he became instantly in demand again, I mean, the Mar-a-Lago rape, it made him infinitely a bigger get, to put it in the language of cable, than any Ron DeSantis or critical race theory story imaginable. In one telling incident from the chair mentioned in the story, Fox anchors were beseeching him, you know, Mr. Trump, President Trump, call in, we'll open the phone lines. I mean, this is crazy. This is happening. But but they, they really were saying this in air. And he didn't do it. And he wouldn't do it. And I think he gave a comment to a, a foxnews.com reporter. But part of it is, of course, that Trump has to be very careful with what he says now, given his legal exposure. But part of it also is retaliation, you know, that he's pissed that these guys tried to turn their heel on him. So Trump's view on this, like, you know, any um, eight or nine year old is, so that's how, what you did to me. Here's what I'm going to do to you. And like most of the exchanges he's had with Fox News in the past, inevitably, they sort of need each other and want each other. And I, I do think at some point, this will end with a big fat wet one uh, between those two sides. <laughs> yeah, probably. As a former digital reporter at CNN and former embed, I love the fact that this journalist, Brooke Singman, just got the interview because I know from being inside these TV oh, networks, it, totally. makes, it makes everyone so cranky. And they, I guarantee you that like, all the reporters, Hannity, Ducey, whatever, like were calling executives being like, why didn't I get the interview? And it's like, you didn't get the interview. Like we don't hand them out. Like, you know, she got it on her, for whatever reason, she got it and you didn't. I love that stuff. It's very fun for me. You can picture the Elmer Fudd smoke coming out of their ears, you know, <laughs> and, and, and probably like threatening this person that they'd made some mistake that was going to mess up everything and, and and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, Brooke, I hope you had a, a, a cocktail that night. Good for you. Um, but <laughs> what, what, one thing also, though, on the talent front, though, is Hannity. Sean Hannity was basically like one of Trump's biggest advisors, like in his presidency and throughout the turmoil during the 2020 election and, and the outcome there with Joe Biden winning. And now Trump is going around, according to Zatera, saying, Hannity's turned on me. He doesn't like me anymore. <laughs> you know, Fox denies that. Hannity denies that. But basically, Hannity is saying the party has moved on from Donald Trump. Whether that's true or not, I think it gets to what you were just saying. Like, I don't think Fox can move on from Donald Trump necessarily. He owns the party. The Republicans love him. He's good for a rating still for Fox. And they can't fully push him away. And so... I will be interested to see if there is a Republican primary in the first place. But if it is Trump, DeSantis, Trump, DeSantis, Pence, Haley, whatever, what do you think Fox does in that situation? You know, I feel like this is a bad sequel to a bad movie that probably shouldn't have gotten a sequel. Fox News is obviously around 1.8 times the size of CNN. Its profit is, is well over a billion dollars. But it is a linear TV business with an aging audience. Trump is a late 70s something potential presidential candidate. There is not a long-term plan here on either side. And so I do think that Fox News will quickly capitulate to whatever Trump and his team 
deem necessary in, in terms of coverage. And I wouldn't be surprised if, in an almost like Biden from the basement way, if he does run in 24, I think there will be some speeches, but I think a lot of it will be like call-ins from the basement in Mar-a-Lago or call-ins from the dining room. And I think Fox will be happy to play that game. And it's important to remember, by the way, like the original sin of this feud between Trump and Fox it isn't anything more material than the facts that Fox called Arizona for Biden earlier than other networks. Arizona obviously went for Biden, but Trump's fury stems from that, which he felt was a sort of, uh, you know, preemptive nuking of his campaign when obviously that's far from the case. So it, he wants to litigate old horror stories. I, I don't know if it's in Fox's long-term best interest to to air them, but I'm sure that it will. Fox is also caught between wanting to appease and appeal, you know, the red meat Republican base while also having to have a foot in both traditional media when it comes to just like at legacy advertising and whatever their carrier fees are, but also like they have to abide by certain standards. Dominion is suing Fox for $1.6 billion because you can't just go on TV and make up lies. There are probably digital creators and meme lords and podcast hosts out there on the right who feel like they can say whatever and get away with it. But if you're Fox and you're this towering media empire, you have to be beholden to some kind of legal standards and practices. As much as people think they're off the rails and off the ledge, especially with Tucker Carlson, they can't outright lie <laughs> and defame people. John, when we come back, we're going to talk about the other conservative media empire out there, Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire. Welcome back, everyone. John, we have a piece up on Puck right now um, written by Tina Wynn, who is, I think, better than most reporters steeped in the conservative internet and its whims. It's id. <laughs> she has a piece called The Chip and Johanna of MAGA Internet, referencing Chip and Johanna Gaines. She's referring to Ben Shapiro and Jeremy Boring. What a name. Great name, Jeremy Boring. He's not boring <laughs> because they have built the Daily Wire into a media titan. For the audience listening that might not know what The Daily Wire is, can you please explain? Yeah, I'll do my best. And I, and I think actually I was surprised when this piece made it to my desk at how much more The Daily Wire had become than, than I remembered it. You know, this is an unfair comparison and I don't want to, um, don't at me anyone, but, but Ben Shapiro is sort of like a, in my mind, a sort of Stephen Miller meets Bill Simmons. He is this uh, alt-right happy, rose to prominence during the Trump prelude content lord. He has a psychic hold of a millennial MAGA audience the way that Bill Simmons did of a sort of, you know, Gen Z millennial sports and, and culture. Uh, Gen X millennial. Gen X, it's, it's true, yeah. <laughs> X, no X-lennials, that's, that's what we are, right. Um, <laughs> spoken like true X-lennials here. Um, but the Daily Wire was this content farm that they created of culture war adjacent work from what they felt was an underrepresented point of view. So it was like a much more tolerable Breitbart, maybe. And over the course of years, it has mushroomed into a streaming service. There was Daily Wire Plus, which has like approaching a million subscribers paying between eight and 14 bucks a month. And they've also mushroomed into a consumer packaged goods company. There is now a line of Jeremy's Razors. It's a, a, an intentional knockoff of Harry's Razors, which stopped advertising with them to help the modern anti-woke man groom himself. I'm sure there's some sort of like Paul Bunyan type of machismo angle there. But anyway, lo and behold, this is the number that struck me their revenue, they report to private companies, so um, we can only go by what they disclose about their internal accounting, is $180 million a year. 
and it's in a model that is a blend of advertising and recurring revenue subscription. So if you just do the back of the envelope math and you think, okay, Axios just traded at a 5x multiple on an advertising business. The Athletic just traded at a, a 10x multiple on a pure play subscription business. Let's call this a seven or seven and a half multiple times 180. Like this is a multi-billion dollar business. Boring and Shapiro only took about 5 million in seed investment money from some fracking lord. So they are, if you do the back of the envelope math, very, very wealthy, not just on paper now. And they're reinvesting it to make more content for children whose parents um, are fearful of an insidious liberal agenda. From a cultural, political standpoint, I think it's potentially slightly frightening. But from a business standpoint, it's really fascinating because you see how the culture wars are becoming a lifestyle business. The same way that like Nike wants to sponsor Colin Kaepernick because of what he's endured for his own bravery and ability to, to say what's on his mind, even when it was incredibly unpopular in the NFL and the culture at large. There is also not just a view, but a business reality on the right that people will make CPG purchasing decisions based on the fact that they're anti-woke. Man, I have so many thoughts on this. One, I spend a lot of my mornings going through YouTube, looking for clips for my Snapchat show and just watching like raw video of Biden speeches and whatnot. But because I spend so much time on YouTube looking for things political, I am bombarded with pre-roll ads from the Daily Wire. Their marketing and user acquisition strategy is really sophisticated. Because I get those kind of pre-roll ads, I often get like conservative stuff, like entire products to sell to that universe, like survival goods or dog food for conservatives, like things right. like that. There's a whole world out there. But the official elite conversation about media is very like inward looking and it focuses on the same things like the top tier newspapers, Times Post, Wall Street Journal, mm -hmm. Politico, maybe CNN, Fox, MSNBC, the networks. The whole conservative podcast and media world has left that mainstream universe behind and not just in like an ideological way, but like in terms of sheer numbers, I just pulled up like on Spotify, like the top news and politics podcasts, you got the daily, you've got NPR up first, the journal powers that be will be in here yeah, um, pretty soon, you I'm know sure. <laughs> um, but you also have like the Ben Shapiro show, you have Louder with Crowder, Stephen Crowder, the Matt Walsh show, mm -hmm. the Dan Bongino show, and they are huge and they are kind of what a media company should be. They're like distributed like the Daily Wire is on Snapchat, it's on YouTube, they have a podcast, they have all kinds of um, content channels and they have different personalities, especially like if you are a millennial or Gen Z, you care more about personalities first and then the brand. And yep, they're owning that. I just want to read you a quick line or two from Tina's piece about this. She says that when it comes to Daily Wire, the company has moved from Los Angeles to Nashville and signed a veritable A-list of conservative influencers, such as commentator, anti-vaxxer Candace Owens, and elevated their own homegrown talents like Michael Knowles and Matt Walsh into right-wing superstardom. With their recent addition of psychologist and author Jordan Peterson, they're also wading into a broader market best typified by Joe Rogan's audience, people who wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as conservative or MAGA per se, and probably don't like Trump, but rankle at the prospect of wokeness in their workplace or cancel culture, driving away their favorite comedians. And that last point is really important. Like not only have they developed the stable of MAGA talent, they're also in the culture wars and talking about right. identity and political correctness and critical race theory. And Ben Shapiro is not even an ideologue himself. He's just a professional debater slash contrarian who's really good yeah. at quote unquote owning the libs. I mean, like he's the person you think of when you think of that phrase and just saying how the left is bad or what Democrats are doing is wrong. 
while rarely standing up for things other than perhaps like abortion rights, traditional family values, and Israel. And so there's a lot of power in that. When you talk about culture a lot, you get a lot of eyeballs, especially among young men who start to creep into conservative politics. It's very fascinating how they are just crushing it. <laughs> They're just totally crushing it. Yeah. Shapiro's built a business by going outside of politics here. Obviously, he's deeply political, but the issues that they prey on here are like a lot softer and fuzzier than any sort of policy issue. It is a lot of like soft political sort of nimbyism. Like, don't let these liberals tell you what to do. Don't let them tell you that the way that you live your life is wrong. One other funny thing that this company made me sort of come to grips with is so much of the infrastructure on the right for generations has been really patronage funded and, and money losing when you think of the Coke network, these are large donor infrastructure networks that are trying to inculcate young people to be part of the cause. This was a largely money losing enterprise to bring people into the, you know, the sort of broader Reagan tent. And what we're seeing in the Daily Wire is that actually it can be a very profitable business and it's entertainment. And unlike these old like Kirk Cameron movies that I feel like in people our age used to be stunned at the... <laughs> The guy from, um, was it Growing Pains? Kirk Cameron from Growing Pains, who now, like, he was in the, all those left-behind Christian movies. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. You'd see guys like Kirk Cameron who would move beyond to, to take on this new identity as a sort of religious, quasi-political figure. And this is largely religion-free. It's a goop for conservatives. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Without the poop replacements. Yet. <laughs> Yet, right. Look, as someone who's been to a bunch of Turning Point USA conferences and a bunch of CPACs, a reason that the right is finding some success among young people on the internet is it's just more fun. It's more fun to talk about culture wars. When I was coming up, Obama was cool. And like rappers were like name dropping Obama and their songs <laughs> and stuff. And like now like the Dems are perceived as kind of an old, boring, like neoliberal party. Conservatives are the rabble rousers and the contrarians and the people, you know, who know how to have fun in a way that might not be fun for you and I or people listening, but like they get pretty rowdy at their events and they're good at dropping memes. And I guess I just see this being steeped in young people world that I can understand their appeal, which is related to Trump's appeal, which is making politics about culture and entertainment rather than substance and getting into politics and governing for the right reasons. John, I'll leave you with one quick story. Uh, I think it was like 2017, but I was out here in LA filming one of my episodes for Good Luck America. We did a whole episode on this whole like conservative media and the Daily Wire at the time was based in LA. My camera crew and I went over to their office and even then I was impressed at the machinery. I mean, it was like yeah. a really nice office. It had this sort of like I miss Bo Deedle vibe about it. Like there were like black leather couches and like cigar cases and stuff. That's funny. Like humidors and like nice bottles of whiskey. It's just like very like Republican masculine kind of feel to it um, or trying to be at least. And I did an interview with Ben and walked around the office and I was just, I was just struck by like back then it was an operation. And now Tina writes, they have like 230 employees or something. They've relocated to Nashville where the taxes are better. It's not just because California is broken, uh, as Ben Shapiro <laughs> said, taxes are nicer there. Anyway, it's just they're going to keep growing. And I would urge people listening to pay more attention to conservative media out there. Uh, if you're not already, dip your toes into it just to see what the other team is talking about. <laughs> I guarantee you, it will surprise you. It's an impressive operation. These guys aren't fucking around. They are not fucking around. All right, John, have a good week, man. All right, you too, man. Talk to you later. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 